This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Good afternoon and welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Erin Jones. Um, shout out to Marissa and the Doing Time um, team for the last hour of radio. But um, I'm pleased to bring you the Beyond Zero Emissions show today. Uh, as always, we're trying to pack as much into the hour as we can. And I'm particularly interested today, we're covering a couple of topics and we'll extend some of them into next week's show as well. But one of the things that I'm really interested in looking at is new companies that are trying to make an impact in the way that not only the way they do business, but the type of businesses that they are in terms of either transitioning to renewable energy um, or the tech tools associated with that. But the one we're going to be focused on today is actually a food waste business um, and what that's doing because food waste is uh, an incredible contributor to the CO2 footprint in the world to the extent that if food waste was a country worldwide, it would actually be the third biggest contributor of CO2 emissions, which is pretty astounding. So I'll be glad to um, bring you that um, coming up. But first of all, we're actually going to go to Louise Page, who is the president of the Save Western Port organisation, who we've been following their ongoing campaign around what's happening in that area and the gas... Um, developments that AGL are trying to propose down there and it's something that we've followed to some extent and we're continuing to do that because we want to support this local initiative and get as many people aware of it as possible because uh, you know we've got to tackle things on a local level as well as a global level. So let's have a listen to Louise and what's happening down in the Western Port area, which for those of you that may be listening on podcast is south east of Melbourne. Um, but as I said, you know that's where it's happening locally. Well, that's where it's proposed to be happening. But as we well know, it has broader implications. So let's have a listen to Louise. Listeners, I'm pleased to have on the line Louise Page and um, as you well know we've been following the issue down in the Western Port area south um, of Melbourne and what's going on with AGL and various others. So I'm pleased to have Louise on to give us a bit of an update from the Save Western Port campaign. Hi Erin, how are you? Great, thanks Louise. Good, um, thanks for having us back on. Um, at the moment the, the current status is that the project, which I'll describe briefly in a moment, is about halfway through the EES, the Environmental Effects Statement for Victoria. And at presently, AGL are holding public drop-in sessions, um, from, which started actually last Saturday and are going on through this week into next Saturday in various locations. Um, and that is to inform where they're at. So the project is, the, so what they'll actually be telling us is uh, where they're at with studies to do with a proposed import, uh, gas import project that they're working on or planning for Western Port, which would be a floating uh, gas import terminal at Crib Point, uh, which would receive tankers which come from around the world to unload gas which is then regasified and AGL would like to build a pipeline from Crib Point to Pakenham which is uh, approximately 57 kilometres long and would need to clear 30 metres wide of vegetation for that whole distance. Uh, so the, the project's significant. And presumably and with a, a fair amount of um, land resumptions. Yep. So the, the pipeline section tends to get overlooked. The focus tends mm. to be on the floating terminal, sort of which is like a factory because it's in or plans to be in Western Port, um, which is a Ramsar-listed wetland. So as you can imagine, com local communities from here right round to the Bass Coast are not happy about it 
because we've seen record numbers of whales. The bay is really healthy from where it was in the 70s and 80s. There's a lot of factors at play. I mean, primarily, of course, the fact that Australia being the largest exporter of gas mm. is currently looking at bringing it back in, which is the most ludicrous thing I think most people have heard of. Yeah, exactly. So AGL are running these, um, effectively, these information sessions at various community halls. Uh, what's And you mentioned they've already kind of kicked off. Mm. What kind of feedback uh, are they getting from from your group um, in particular and just, just general people in the community? Well, as, as always, there's new people learning about this and not very happy. Um, the, the community position has not changed. As you might recall, uh, at the previous, uh, the last federal election, every candidate, every single candidate was against this project. That's how, that's how much they recognise that, A, that it's wrong, and B, that the community and not just the local community, but the whole community of Mornington Peninsula are so much against this project. Um, so last Saturday was the first, and that was at Hastings, um, at a venue in Hastings. The mood is no different. Like, to me, it's just, it seems like a repeat. Um, it's, it's a really difficult point because you think well in some ways what is the point of showing us what you're doing midway if studies aren't complete mm. what's the purpose of this really is it i'm just thinking in terms of a, of a process is this something that it's kind of a tick the box that we've done community consultation that's how i see it mm. you know i really can't see you ask a question and it's well studies aren't, haven't been finished so we're not really sure so mm. why am i here <laughs> you know it's it's a bit of a strange, uh, strange process to my mind. I don't really understand. AGL have certainly upped their, um, I guess, trying to achieve social licence, you might call it, because they've got an interactive map that you can use and place comments. There's a forum where you can place comments. There's these sessions. But none of them, to our mind, seem to be achieving terribly much, except for us to continually repeat what we've always said and nothing's changed. Yeah. And so, so um, you can only look at it in that way. You can mm -hmm. only think, well, they are either trying to uh, establish what is the biggest problem for the community and then try and get around it. Or, well, I don't know. I, don't, I can't think of an or really, except as you say, to tick the box. Yeah, right. Okay, so... Um as you mentioned, you know we've we've talked about this a, a while, and you've got a a, um, a lot of information now on your website about the project and the process. What's the best way if someone's hearing about this, maybe for the first time, or maybe they've heard about it a few times and they think, okay, I, I'd like to kind of get behind sure. this. What's yep. the best way they can do yep. that? Well, I think actually, first of all, I mean, apart from the fact that, of course, I want everybody to go to savewesternport.org and learn more about the project itself. But people really need to become informed about our energy. Like, I think that's really, apart from the damage to Western Port and because it's so senseless, that's number one. But number two is, why is this happening? And it's because I, the gas cartel wants to continue to make profits. It's because we've got a broken gas system. It's because our government has just not got a rational policy. You know, there are a lot of reasons that these things that keep happening to our environment that don't need to happen. So if, aside from that, to focus solely on the AGL project and to send a message to uh, Brett Redman, who's the CEO, or, or uh, Lily D'Ambrosio, or the Premier, everybody needs to be standing up and saying, this isn't right. So if you go to savewesternport.org, there's a couple of the latest things we've done. We've, we've just been working really hard on a new brochure, which uh, we can get out to people. And we also have a new rubbish bin sticker so that people can put it on the side of their rubbish bin, which basically says, AGL, put your plans in here, meaning in the bin. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing for people to put out once a week and mm -hmm. it informs others that there's something else going on. Yeah, exactly. Because, and I think it's a really important point you make, actually, because, and I know over the years of BZE doing work in the energy space, 
a lot of people's first things, oh, well, you know, well, surely we don't, you know, we have to do this, don't we? We don't want the lights to turn off. Exactly. But once you actually show them, you know, and, and give them an education around the fact that, hey, there are alternatives, here's exactly. this, here's this, here's this, then then they suddenly can, can say with some authority, oh, we don't need that then, do we? Exactly. Because they know the lights aren't going to go out, et cetera, et cetera, all the sort of scaremongering tactics That's that right. happen. Absolutely right. In fact, just very briefly, I read a, uh, an article by the ABC which was on AEMO's uh, latest report, so the Australian Energy Market Operator, who were that sort of scaremongering. It's, mm-hmm. it's their role to do it, but they were saying that, you know, there could be blackouts this summer, but when you actually look at the risk, it's like 0.003%. Yeah. Of Australia time. actually has one of the most reliable grids. Um, yeah. It's yeah that whole. Um, I had a, a guest on. Um, this is going back a while when some a major report came out, and yeah, like you say, it's so minimal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's terrible when it happens, and it does happen from time to time. And um, certainly in South Australia, when it happened, but that was because. Uh, pylons Creek. were on the ground yep. and it didn't matter whether that was clean energy or coal energy That's running right. down those lines that would have happened but yep. unfortunately you know they ran picked up and ran with this oh this is renewable energy which was an absolute which was absolutely an untruth and was That's irresponsible right. um, to put out um, and they they kept saying that for years yeah. too which was even more irritating politicians kept using that line and we don't want the lights to go out like in south australia which was such rubbish oh it is i mean unfortunately it's a bit of a trumpism if you if you say something enough and mm-hmm. is it, and and it's clearly an untruth you know it starts to stick and and that's unfortunately um that's right. That and, you know, against. one of the things we do is say to Asia, look, you can do better than this. You know, it's not, we understand that uh, you're not the only player in this, but you are the only player who's talking about putting a floating gas import terminal in a Ramsar wetland. That's mm-hmm. you. You can do something about it. Yeah, exactly. You know, you could make a le- bit less profit. It's mm. not. It's it's not going to be the end of the world, and you'll actually be a leader if you look at doing something else. Well, sure. I really appreciate you keeping us informed about what's going on, and um, would encourage people to go to the website savewesternport.org and see how they can engage and um, you know get along to some of these community meetings that AGL's having, and, and let them know exactly what Louise just said that you know pick up your game. You don't have to be doing this. That's right. Well, Thanks great so to much, talk to you. Thanks so much for um, keeping us up to date, Louise, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cyclone Cast is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. BZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855am. Now, we're going to have a little bit of a look at some of the research that Beyond Zero Emissions are doing. There's been an ongoing program of zero carbon communities, which is working with communities that want to step up and actually put in place a plan and work through the particular issues that might be in their area. And in that vein, BZE has worked with with councils and different community groups who are actually stepping up and, and assisted them with some of the framework of that. And one of the projects that's currently on the table is in Collie, Western Australia. So we've got Lachlan Rule, who I spoke with earlier today, who's going to give us a bit of an outline of what that work is um, is happening. And the report will be published approximately in October. So we've just got a little bit of a taster of what that's looking like. And we'll, we'll do more detailed follow-up on the report once it is published in October. So let's have a listen to Lachlan and what's happening um, in Collie WA. 
Listeners, I'm pleased to have Lachlan Rule on the line. And Lachlan is the project lead for Repowering Our Regions, which is an initiative of the Beyond Zero Emissions. Uh, one of the, the key things that we're doing in reaching out to uh, many communities that want to actually take control of um, making that energy transition. And with BZD's had a history of doing this through a number of initiatives um, of getting the ball rolling in different areas from, from Noosa to Byron Bay and certainly had a big hand in the um, work that happened in Port Augusta um, and the movement that happened there to the community where they really wanted to, you know, the coal-fired power stations were closing down and gas was looking like a replacement. But the research that BZD did there and the collaboration with other organisations really helped. So we're really pleased to have Lachlan on the line today and we're going to talk about another project that uh, is currently in play, which is in Collie in WA. So welcome Lachlan and we're looking forward to hearing all about this one. Thank you for having me, Erin. So can you just give us a little bit of background initially about um, where is Collie and, and what's there currently? So Collie is a town about uh, 200 kilometres south of Perth, inland about 45 minutes now from the coast near Bunbury. Um, the, the town and the sort of surrounding area has about 9,000 people in it. And it's home to three um, coal power stations which has for a long time provided a, a fairly substantial share of WA's, well, southwestern WA's electricity needs. Um, and it's also, there's two coal mines there as well, two large coal mines mining one uh, sort of low-quality coal seam. And it's been, that, that seam's been worked for about 140 years now. So it's been a long, a long history and a long association with the coal industry. Right. Uh, coal. And so, you know, for listeners that may not be aware, um, we've got a fairly complex energy system in Australia and um, the West Coast has has a standalone system as opposed to the East Coast. Yeah, so the West Coast is on a, because um, it's such a long way between WA and, and, and the East Coast. In the East Coast, we're on, we've got a, the national electricity market, the NEM, um, but on the West Coast, well, sorry. Which is a bit of a misnomer really, isn't it? Well, quite, you know, most of the nations electricity market. Mm. Um, on the um, on, on the west, though, they've got, uh, well, one large uh, network, which is in the southwest, so it covers Perth up to Geraldton, out to Kalgoorlie, and sort of down to Albury, mm-hmm. Albany, rather, um, which is called the Swiss, the Southwest Interconnected System. And there's a smaller one up in northern WA called the NWIS, the Northwest Interconnected System. So they have quite a different... Um, energy market set up to the rest of the country and there's still a lot more um, government involvement in the market and the largest player is still a, uh, a state-owned entity. So it's sort of a, a bit of a quasi-market um, in the Swiss. Right. And so, so Collie fits into that Swiss model? Yeah, and Collie, yeah. Is, Collie is kind of the, the, the heart of that, uh, the heart of the Swiss. Most of, you know, all roads or transmission lines in, in the Swiss lead to Collie. Right. So a fairly big, big part of it then. Massive. I yeah. mean, it still provides, I get my number wrong here, um, but sort of between 30 and 45% of WA's um, electricity on the Swiss still comes out of Collie, and then the rest of it's made up with a mix of gas and renewable. Um, there's a lot of gas in WA because they have a... Domestic um, quota. Domestic quota, exactly right. Um, mm. And there's not a very, like actually a relatively limited renewable share in WA at the moment. Mm, okay. So it's a fairly significant player then. So can you just give us sort of some parameters about, um, you know, where this project is up to, how it was initiated and, and what you're kind of seeing as, as, as some of the, um, you know, potential outcomes or things that we can learn from this? Yeah, so uh, this project Canada was funded by a charitable trust in WA called the Kurubup Trust. Um, and we were funded to do a piece of work looking at what was necessary to move WA um, towards 100% renewables. Mm-hmm. Um, and our sort of the early research we did last year, I think really um, there's demonstrated that, that a big part of the problem with the renewable debate in WA is that the politics of coal transition are very challenging because it's a very concentrated group of, of coal workers in Collie 
and they've got quite a quite a strong union presence. And so there was a bit of a it was a, a very challenging space. So long as it so long as transitioning to renewables meant lots of people in Collie um, losing their jobs and potentially not having something else to move into, um, it made moving away from coal very difficult. So a lot of our work is focused on what else Collie can do and what other exciting sort of productive, secure um, industries make sense in Collie and how could we, um, you know, retrain and reskill and, and, and help existing coal workers and their kids and other people in the community move into um, jobs in industries like high-value sustainable manufacturing, green materials production, um, high-value recycling and resource reclamation. Um, and this kind of just transition is such an important thing because, you know, obviously we and, and a lot more people now are understanding that, you know, the impetus from the time to move to renewables is is um, imperative. But the fact is there still is a, a um, you know, not a huge amount, but a number of workers. And if you were one of those workers in these industries, um, you know, it, it it can be looking pretty grim. Um, so we really, it's about kind of managing that just transition, isn't it? Yeah, and particularly, like absolutely, and particularly, I mean, I think there's a couple of bits, but I think there's one, you know, for these workers who've worked in these mines and power stations, so some of them for, gen- for generations, um, you know, for a very long time, they were the sort of drivers of WA's prosperity. They kept the lights on. They played a really important role in sort of, looking after West Australians and so I think sometimes it can be a challenge to when all of a sudden the discourse changes and people feel like they're being attacked for that work so I think it's really important to you know have some sort of understanding of the fact that there's a, a cultural aspect to this as well mm. but also in a place like Collie where that work is highly concentrated um, it's not like in a city um, you know like Perth or or Melbourne, where the loss of a thousand jobs in one industry can be absorbed by other industries, mm. um, that would actually have a really devastating effect in that town if nothing was done to replace those jobs. Because it's just the labour market there isn't isn't large enough to absorb that many new people entering it. So, um, you know, if we want to look after not just the workers but also the communities in which they live and the sort of regions in which they live, then yeah, I think absolutely having a, a sort of managed transition into sustainable new work is totally essential if we want to, you know, if we want to claim to be society that cares about fairness and, and, and justice for, for working people. Yeah. Now, in Port Augusta, obviously, you know, one of the issues that was faced there is, um, you know, a lot of those plants had come to the end of their, their natural life. So where are we up to in Collie? Because um, certainly in Port Augusta, it wasn't a matter of um, whether or not the, the coal would, would close. That, that was inevitable. It was what was going to replace it. So just give me a, a, a framework of, of the timetable of, of um, you know, the, the workable life of, of what's there. And Is that a driver or where does that sit? Yeah, so I think that's, the conversation has changed quite a bit in Collie and WA in the past year to 18 months as the sort of realisation that it, uh, one of these plants in particular is probably no longer a going concern. Um, so the largest plant there, which is a power station called Muja Power Station, um, which originally had eight units, four of them have closed after a disastrous and expensive attempt at a renovation. Um, and the state government just, last week or the week before announced the planned closure of two more of those generating units, um, five and six uh, in 2022. Um, plus there's been, a couple of months ago, there was 20 job losses of a coal mine called Griffin Coal there. Um, so I think there was a dawning realisation that these plants are um, increasingly nearing the end of their, not just their um, mechanical life, you know, like the the the, the Units are closing at Mudra are 38 years old, so they, you know, are just at the end of their mechanical life. But, I mean, for all of these sort of very, very large, inflexible generators um, operating in a grid that increasingly requires flexibility and the ability to sort of adapt to changing market conditions as, um, you know, more wind and solar come online, these plants just can't compete. They just, Mm. they wind up producing huge amounts of energy at negative prices for a lot of the time. They can't adapt to the, what the market needs them to do. So certainly Mooja Power Station um, is 
you know, uh, I think there's a pretty clear understanding that that, that one is um, on its last legs. And another power station, they've got their Collie power station as well, is probably facing a similar fate, although it's a bit younger. And there is one new coal power station there that was only opened in 2009 that probably has a fair bit of mechanical life left in it, but whether or not it can compete in a market with low-cost renewable energy, I think, is um, a, a live question. And I think as more renewables come on, it will find it very hard to operate as well. So what is the state of them? And obviously these are um, state government-owned assets. I'm, I'm taking it from... Two, from two of them are. Two of them One are. of them is owned by a private sort of consortium. Right. Okay. So then in terms of what is coming online, what are our kind of projections in WA or in this the southeast uh, sorry southwest um grid in WA? So um the WA Labor government has announced that it will not introduce a renewable energy target um for um one reason or another. Uh, but there is um it's again because of the level of um, government or state government owned entities operating in the market um, there is still a fair bit happening in the space there's earlier this year there was the announcement that 900 megawatts of renewable um, energy capacity was being um, granted grid access in WA um, so that'll be bottom line in the next couple of years um, what looks like it's going to be the country's lowest cost um, renewable project, the Yandin Wind Farm, up towards Geraldton, is coming online um, next year. And WA consumers have been very, very enthusiastic adopters of rooftop solar. So I've had to keep uh, you know, redoing the numbers in the report because when I started writing it last year, there was a, you know, 950 megawatts of rooftop solar, and now they're up to 1,150, you know, so every, every month I have to go back and change the number. So... Um, so that's going to take, still, you know, have quite a bit of an effect then, and, yeah, and increasingly is, so. Yeah, there is still quite a lot of renewable capacity coming on, and they've got fantastic renewable resources in WA. So mm. um, I can't imagine, regardless, I mean, we, we obviously advocate for a target because, you know, you need to know where you're going to make sure you get there. Um, but I think the reality of, of the grid and the reality of just the cost of producing energy now means that um, renewables will come to play a, a much, much, much more important role in WA over the next few years. Yeah. Okay, so then in terms of the report, um, w- when are you looking at, at publishing or what's your time frame around that? Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose in an ideal world it would have been next week. Um, but we are, because we're working with quite a diverse range of stakeholders over in WA, we're really trying to make sure that this report can be something that is productive and useful and um, contributes to the conversation in a sort of helpful way. We are being guided by some of the stakeholders uh, we're working with, um, uh, particularly in the labor movement. So it it looks like we'll be releasing this report in October at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us about some of those collaborations? Um, not, not in too much detail, um, but we've certainly been working for the the union movement in um, Collie has for a very long time played a really big role in sort of looking out for those the workers in the mines and the power station, um, and I think that there's an increasing recognition amongst some of those some of the leaders of the, that movement that the next stage in in looking out for those workers is making sure that they are. Um, you know, looked after as the energy sector changes. Um, and so they're obviously looking for what, what what's next for Collie and what, you know, what new industries can be brought online and how working conditions can be protected and how existing jobs in coal mines and coal power stations can be secured so that people have the sort of, you know, the headspace to start thinking about their futures. Because if you're, if you're always worried about, you know, your job might not be here in a month, two months, it doesn't mm. leave you an awful lot of headspace to start planning in detail for the future. Right. So, so we're working with um, the, the the union who cover workers in the mines and the power station to, um, you know, help, help with some of that thinking around what some of those industries can be mm-hmm. and how you might be able to get those industries off the ground and, you know, incentivise... Uh, new actors to come in and, and, and open up sort of 
sustainable new industries. So when you're talking about these new industries, because one of the things with the work that happened in Port Augusta was, you know, they made, it made sense um, to have generation there because all the generation distribution was was there from, um, you know, the historical uh, coal power plants, etc. Does that same argument hold in Collie, and is Collie an appropriate geographical location for uh, renewable technologies of one variety of another or another? Collie's probably not the best place in WA to build um, sort of wind or solar of any nature, not because it's not windy or not sunny, it's just... WA has some really amazingly windy places um, up in the north, sort of the north coast and on the south coast, and some really sunny places inland. Um, so probably not. So you'd get more bang for your buck elsewhere. You'd get more bang for your buck elsewhere. Um, and we sort of recognised that pretty early. Um, mm-hmm. So what we uh, have focused our work on is looking at um, what other opportunities does a 100% renewable energy target, like a, a rapid, ambitious rollout of renewable energy, what, what other opportunities does that create um, where, where you can locate it in Collie? Uh, and I think what we've found is that there's an opportunity to, to create sort of almost a 1,000 jobs uh, in one space alone by putting in place sort of strong local content requirements, local procurement, procurement requirements for a rapid renewable energy rollout and locating um, a lot of that fabrication and manufacturing activity in Collie, because Collie's got great, you know, it makes a lot of sense for, for fabrication and manufacturing as well, because you've got a skilled workforce, you've got really strong transport links with ports and major centres and the rail lines, you've got mm. um, excellent electricity infrastructure, you've got existing industrial zones there. So yeah. we're focused, we haven't really focused a lot of our effort on on actual renewable generation itself, because I think that will probably happen elsewhere, but on what other opportunities you can create um, okay. as part of a broader, you know, renewable energy sustainability um, push from mm-hmm. the state government and local governments as well. So is that what is that one of the sort of the objectives and outcomes of this this work that you're doing, this report that's going to be generated? To, to show a transition to 100% for for this region or for the whole of the state? Well, the whole estate is a bit harder because um, there's a lot of um, a, a lot of WA's. It's a very uh, big area. Electricity is is consumed on sort of mine sites and industrial sites where they have standalone large standalone mm-hmm. gas generators. Mm-hmm. So we've focused our work on the Swiss. Mm-hmm. So the, well, it's the where the bulk of the population isn't isn't it? The bulk of the population, although it's you know it's kind of not really the bulk of the energy used um, but it is the bulk of the population and it is the, the, the grid on which a very, you know, on which if you're talking about a 100% renewable target, realistically it's probably the grid on which you would start because it could be the biggest bang for your buck and certainly our, our number one recommendation um, in, you know, transitioning and creating a sort of a fair transition for Collie where, you know, you can create new long-term, well-paid, sustainable jobs for people um, is that, that what can underpin that is a 100% renewable energy target on the Swiss. And, you know, I think probably there's lots of opportunities for WA beyond the Swiss, um, uh, but we haven't we haven't modelled them. And, you know, if anyone would like to fund us to do so, feel free and we'll, we can have a chat about that. <laughs> okay, great. Well, look, we probably better wrap up. But So we're looking at probably publishing this work in uh, October um, yep. and um, we'll be looking forward to hearing the recommendations at that point in time and, and probably getting you back on the show to uh, talk through that in a bit more detail once that's been published and is um, available to the public. Yeah, yeah, I would really love to, that way, you know, to be a little bit slightly less cagey, you know, once it's out there, once <laughs> yeah. it's out there in the public eye. Oh, well, we'll give people a taster now. And um, as you mentioned, if there's anyone else out there with um, some money that they want to move things along, uh, BZD is a good place to, to put it because um, oh, it's always quality research that comes out. Well, thanks, Lachlan. And no um, we look forward thanks to talking when you, when you publish. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon, 
I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand You could never understand Feel the fortune flowing You know it isn't stuck So as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, what I'm really interested in in talking about, and we're going to talk about it, I'm going to have some more guests specifically around this topic next week, but it is around um, many of the startups that um, are getting off the ground who are having an impact on um, some of them straight-out energy firms or renewable technologies that um, assist with energy transition, but also uh, food waste. And that's the one we're going to talk about now, but we're also going to extend into this topic more next week about startups and and some of the tools, the modern tools that they're using to actually get some traction. But for now, let's um, have a look at one that's specifically looking at food waste. Listeners, I'm really pleased to have on the line today Jane Coe from Bring Me Home. And Jane's got a really innovative business, which we're going to get into the details of shortly. Uh, but what we're really focusing on in today's show is the impact that small businesses are having um, an impact-based businesses on some of the problems that we face in the world. And the growth that those businesses have been able to achieve and are, and are moving through a process, primarily through the mechanism of crowdfunding. Um, most people would be familiar with some of the the um, evolution of this and, and the likes of Kickstarter and those type of platforms. But now there's actually a number of new platforms that are coming online which allow companies to take advantage of getting funding from multiple sources, which may be at a quite a low um, monetary rate, but to really accelerate businesses, which we certainly think can have impact on reducing the CO2 footprint in the community. So I'm really pleased to have Jane here. And Jane's got an exciting business that she's getting off the ground called Bring Me Home. And it's predominantly a business um, that deals with food waste in a really innovative way for uh, in a win-win situation for food producers and also for consumers. So welcome, Jane. Hi, thanks for having me. So just give our listeners a bit of an outline of what does food waste look like in Australia? Yep, so in Australia, um, food waste is actually a pretty big problem. So on, on an annual basis, we're actually um, throwing out about 4 million tonnes of food um, to the landfill. And a lot of these food are coming from the commercial, industrial and the retail side, um, and a portion of it actually from household. Now, the 4 million tonnes that I'm talking about, though, is actually um, edible surplus food. That means it should be food that shouldn't go to landfill. It could be diverted through multiple uh, ways. So we're not talking um, here about spoilt food. We're actually talking about food that is perfectly edible, nothing wrong with it, that's ending yeah. up in landfill. Yeah. It's so pretty... there's about 4 million tonnes that go, go to landfill about um, every year. And um, I guess in the Australian um, economy that also cost the economy about $20 billion every year just to manage this uh, food waste. So, um, you know, it's, food waste is not just um, an environmental problem. Um, it's also costing the economy a lot of money. Now, with food waste as well, um, in, in the global scale, food waste actually generates a lot of harmful emissions uh, back to the planet. So, um, you know, it's pretty bad to say that uh, if food waste was a country, it'd be, you know, third biggest in terms of uh, emission generation next to US and, and China. Well, that's so, pretty significant. Yeah. So um, uh, I guess in a nutshell, uh, food waste is a problem in Australia. So in, in the retail sector, like 
restaurants, cafes, uh, grocery stores and supermarkets, that's about 7% of the entire problem. Um, now, it looks very small, but it's still pretty, uh, pretty much, you know, um, cons- like contributing to the whole waste issue. Now, there's also another larger portion, which is about 55% that comes from the production side and the manufacturing side. Um, and that's more like the commercial sector and the industrial sector. And then the rest comes from household, which is something that I guess everyone can really, you know, do do a little bit more um, homework into knowing how to reduce food waste in the household level. But that's, you know, these are the three main areas that is feeding into the food waste problem. So you identified that this is as an issue and you've actually put in place a solution. So tell us about Bring Me Home. So Bring Me Home is a mobile app where people can buy discounted surplus food from nearby cafes, restaurants, um, and grocery stores and supermarkets, which would otherwise go to waste. Now, um, people will be able to buy these food um, at a very high discount, so up to 70% off, and they can easily pick it up and support local businesses as well as doing good. Right. So this is food that um, these restaurants would otherwise probably have to dispose of. Um, Mm -hmm. So not only have they got the increased cost of of disposal, but, you know, the end outcome is that ends up in in landfill. And and then, you know, we've got the additional problem of of methane and CO2 and um, everything else that that contributes to. So really, it's it's a bit of a win-win here because, um, you know, the consumer's getting a discount but the um, producers still presumably at least covering some of their costs or doesn't have the disposal cost. Yeah, correct. So a lot of our users actually see the value, um, I guess, in two ways. First of all is the monetary value. They're saving a lot of money just by getting food on our app. Um, to give you a little bit of um, taste of what it's like to buy food on our app, um, pretty much you know anything is discounted for at least 35%. So anyone can get a meal for five five bucks. Between five to seven is the average price, and they'll be able to get one or two meals out of it. Um, and the second second value that they get out of it is also be able to track their own individual impact and how much impact they've made, um, and, and the money they've they've saved on our app as well. Um, and then yeah, like okay, for, so there's some the psychological rewards built in then. Yeah, yeah. So if you jump onto our app, you under you see that once you create an account you'll be able to start to track your individual savings and, you know, how many meals you've saved and as a return, how much emission that you've actually avoided for the whole environment. Um, we do have a tracking for the entire community as well. So you can see, you know, in, in as a whole, how's the community doing in terms of diverting food to go to landfill. Um, yeah, but there's, there's a personalised page for everyone that can track their own impacts individually. Okay, that's great. I mean, I think it's, you know, really important that people can actually see the difference that they're making because, you know, quite often, you know, you get people say, oh, well, what what difference do do, do I make? But the fact is, you know, it's that cumulative effect of everyone making these changes. And in this type of scenario, um, you know, not only are you getting something at a discount, but you're saving something from from going into landfill. Um, So that seems really positive. Uh, now, in terms of your business then, you're a startup, and how long have you been established for and what kind of stage are you up to in, in the business development? Yeah, so I I founded the, the business um, in late 2017, but I haven't really started working on it full-time until early 2018, um, and we launched the app in Melbourne, CBD, uh, August 2018, that was when we launched, so about a year ago actually. We're coming to a one-year anniversary soon. So I guess, um, in short, about one one and a half years, that's that's when it all started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how many meals have been saved from landfill up to this point? Up to this point, almost 3,000 meals. Yeah, great. Yeah. And so what, what kind of, what CO2 impact is, is that then representing? That's, that's nearly 6,000 kilograms of um, carbon emission voided. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, look, it's really interesting, and I know from um, you know having some discussion with you, and we're going to have um, Alan Crabb on the show later from Birchall, which is a um, 
equity crowdfunding platform that you're look you're using because you're about to do a round of funding which is going to assist you with continuing to to grow the business. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there? Yes, yeah, so um so we we've raised um a pre-seed round from a venture capitalist and an angel investor before. Um so we raised about 100k to get the business going and and start, you know, launching to the market. It was it was really great. Like the funding actually helped us accelerate our growth a lot, and you know, with that funding, we were able to expand our services to about 20 suburbs in Melbourne, including the CBD, and we were able to acquire almost 120 food retailers to come on board, um, serving over you know 10,000 users right now. Now um, we we're raising another round, a seed round um, of minimum 200k to up to one million dollars to help us expand further wider into the wider Melbourne and also to launch into Sydney. Okay, So great. in Sydney, we have a, a pretty big market that's just untapped and, you know, waiting for us to get there. We actually have almost 2,000 users that are waiting to use our app. But because, um, you know, with really limited resources, we're really just trying to finish, you know, operating in, in Melbourne before we expand. But it's about time that we expand. So we're raising funding through this platform called Virtual, uh, which is an equity crowdfunding platform. So think Kickstarter, but instead of getting the products as a return, you get company shares. Um, so the whole point of Virtual, doing it through Virtual, is that um, you know anyone that wants to invest um, in, in a cool startup or invest in a, a startup that is driving impact, they will be able to do it through virtual because usually um, investment into startups are just accessible for you know angel investors or venture capitalists. But the whole point of doing it through virtual is to make it more accessible for anyone to invest. Now, Bring Me Home is doing a round, which means anyone could become an investor, a, a shareholder of Bring Me Home for as little as $100. And you know, reason why we're not really raising through the traditional route, but through virtual is because Bring Me Home is a people's brand. I want people to feel great about being a shareholder. I want them to be proud of becoming an owner, a part owner of this impact-driven startup. And so, you know, I thought, why not give the public the opportunity to invest and, and have them be a, a shareholder? Um you know, it's it's a great company. It's for impact. We're doing a lot of things to to drive um, environmental sustainability. So I thought it's it's a really good way to just attract people who who wants to back us as well. Yeah, and and one of the reasons that I wanted to to focus on this topic this week is you know a lot of our listeners um, obviously are from the energy space and um, are interested in Australia transitioning as quickly as possible um, to certainly renewable energy, but there's a whole lot of factors that that takes in around, um, and, you know, waste and the the byproducts from that, um, you know, are massive contributors to the CO, CO2 footprint. So I think it's important for people, not only, you know, where they place their their political clout, but also where they place their dollar. And, you know, whether it's like yourself with a food waste company or a lot of um, smaller uh, energy and renewable tech companies that have got great ideas and great initiatives um, and having the ability to use these new type of funding platforms to actually get some traction and get going because a lot of them have some great things to bring to market that are going to have an impact on um, you know moving forward in a positive way. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, really agree to that because I feel like this is probably going to be our feature um, into how we want to drive impact. Now, there, there's a lot of investors that I've spoken to, which you know always tell me, "Oh, I had this, um, you know, solution. I thought about a concept like bring me home before, but just didn't really know how to execute or have the energy to execute." Well, this is why we're here, and this is why we want people to get involved because you know they probably I would say maybe like 20% of the people that register to invest would say the same thing that, "Oh, this is a great concept. I actually thought about it before." Um, but they just didn't end up, you know, doing something about it. Well, there's actually a way to do something about it, which is to in, invest their, their dollar into something that, you know, matters to them, something that they care about, something yeah. that they believe in. 
Um, and I always tell them, say, you know, if, if you believe that you, you think that we're doing great stuff and you want to see us to succeed and you believe this is something that should exist, then I love them to invest. You know, even if it's a token investment, 100 bucks, that we will be able to drive impact with that 100 bucks. And yeah. that is the way we could scale the impact. Now, what you're doing also, it's not an unproven model. You've actually had a, a, a prior relationship with a European company who's, who's effectively using a similar model to success in Europe. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I, I used to work for a very similar company called Too Good To Go. Now, they're a lot more established um, compared to Bring Me Home because they've been around for almost four to five years now. Um, I started working with them when um, it was 2017. So, yeah, a few years ago, like two two years ago. And um, it was great working with them. Um, that really just working with them helped me do a lot of learnings from them. And I was able to see through everything that was operating in the back in the back end. Um, and I just thought it was such a great concept. Why isn't anyone doing this in Australia? Um, pretty much, long story short, spoke to the um, former co-founders and told them that I want to start this in Australia because it's such a great concept. I think people would be really excited about um, this idea. And they were just very supportive. They said, yeah, you go, go for it. We really want to see you succeed. Um, do what you need to get this started. And that's when I left the company and started bringing you home in Australia. Yeah, great. Okay, so look, if listeners, um, you know, want to be able to um, support this this initiative and, you know, understanding that um, it's still a business that we're talking about and you need to be well informed about what you're doing. Um, yeah. But if this is something that you think uh, has potential and it's certainly going to, and already is having an impact uh, around food waste and the associated, you know, economic um, problems with that and, of course, the um, carbon pollution problems that are associated with that and, and methane and the, the climate change impacts, then this might be something that you're interested in. So um, if people want to have a look at your website and that will give them more information about how they might want to get involved, is that the best way for people to look at it? Yes, yeah, so um, they can. what they could do is go on virtual. So B-I-R-C-H-A-L, virtual.com, and then um, they will be able to see our company page on, on the main page of virtual. Um, and once they click on it, they'll be able to see the whole campaign. There's also a campaign video, which is a very nicely done video, just me walking around talking about the problem. <laughs> but, um, it's yeah, it's uh, I think people will be able to also get a bit more information from that website because we will upload a um, investment prospectus to everyone. Uh, that will be made publicly available so people can actually get access to more information about uh, what we do, our approach, our strategy and our business plan and financials as well. Okay, great. Yeah. And, and so that was an interview that I did earlier today with Jane Coe, who's got a really innovative food waste company called Bring It Home. And we're going to continue that theme next week of looking at startups and what crowdfunding can do to help these new startup impact companies that are trying to really make a difference in the world around carbon pollution. So I hope you enjoyed that and we'll continue on that theme next week. But stay tuned for Communication Mixdown and uh, I'll see you next week. And my name's Erin Jones. Bye-bye.